Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the only podcast that reviews films with five or, free, five or fewer reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, you are in the place to watch the stuff that played at festivals and got forgotten. You're in the place to watch the movies that you can only stream on places like Tubi. I'd say spoiler alert, but every movie we seem to talk about these days is available for streaming on Tubi. So Tubi sponsor us. Uh, you know, you know how to reach us. And as always, I am joined by my partner in crime, my co-host, the Matt with the good hair, Matt Donato. How you doing, bud? Pretty good. I just finished watching a movie on Tubi. Yeah. <laughs> the one streaming platform that definitely does not back certified forgotten but maybe someday did you say Tubi, the free streaming platform with a catalog that rivals those of the major streaming platforms like netflix and amazon prime yes Tubi, where you can find any of the certified forgotten movies that we have covered and Tubi, where you can pretty much find any damn movie you're looking for and for free wow i i bet if you went to tubi.tv you would learn some really we really aren't sponsored i don't know why we're putting much effort into it um it's, it's the bit it's just we, uh, we're terrible it's fair. We're terrible people maybe Maybe if our guests stop picking Tubi releases, we'll stop pumping them up. But um, to be or not to be, we'll see. Speaking of get no, God, I was hoping to get out of it without that joke. Speaking of guests, Matthew, uh, we have we have an excellent one this week, and we have a guest who has had us featured on their podcast. So we're especially excited to introduce today's. Yes, we indeed are. We are both thankful for being on the podcast that they co-host, and I'll just get right to it. It is Jen Adams, co-host of the Losers Club podcast, co-host of the Psychoanalysis podcast, and also freelance film journalist. Uh, basically, you know, the most important place being certified forgotten. So, Jen <laughs> Adams, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me on your pod. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having us, too. <laughs> if you host two podcasts and write um, for Certified Forgotten, that's the hat trick. That's, that's really right. Like the- <laughs> That is as good as it gets in the world of horror film criticism. <laughs> it's pretty much your ego. It. Yeah, it is. I know. Right there. <laughs> I know. I'm. This is my last appearance, also, too. Like, there's nowhere else to go. You know. Exactly. That's fair. <laughs> um, we're sorry. We're sorry. We're forcing you into early retirement, but at least you you're egotted by film Twitter standards. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I I am sorry that I have to kick your butt this week in fantasy football on today, September oh, the thirtieth, because no. you are you are my opponent this week. Am I and, really? Uh, uh-oh. Hope well, you set your lineup. Just got awkward. I did set my lineup, which on Thursdays is usually just a quick scan to see if I have anybody playing tonight. And then I worry about it on Sunday. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. If you The lineups for Thursday night games are basically, are they playing on Thursday? Great. I'm benching them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do have somebody tonight, though. And, uh, and all right, all coming right. after you with a vengeance, Donato. So, so we're we're all gonna we're all gonna turn on our little sleeper apps and uh, let right. this be an exciting adventure for this evening. But exactly. but I could talk about our fantasy football teams forever. Um, <laughs> but we want to talk about horror and specifically, Jen. I know that you probably told this story a hundred times on your podcast. Since you're a guest in our podcast, tell us about kind of your earliest memories of discovering horror as a genre, what the things were that sort of spoke to you that first like too young childhood experience where you thought like, oh, this is uncomfortable in a good way. (laughs) Well, the family story is that my mom who hates horror um, because she's terrified watched Halloween when she was pregnant with me like about a month before I was born. So that's my family who none of them like horror. That's where they they say it all started. Um, But I remember, like, I think my first entry way in was Stephen King. You know, I found um, my dad was kind of a, 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 like, casual Stephen King fan. So I just grew up seeing it on his shelf and looking at that, that 
picture of like the the claws through the sewer grate and I just was fascinated mm -hmm. by it I have this memory of taking my copy of night shift to slumber parties and like convincing the girls there to let me read like the mangler to them and so I was that kid and I was I, I just was really really into it and I remember the first horror movie I ever remember seeing was Fright Night at a friend's house um, who had like older siblings and stuff so that was yeah. I was just hooked and I wanted to I just I, I needed I was fascinated by it I was really drawn to it and you know I've got a I've got a lot of theories about why that might be but yeah it was yeah just from very very early on I was really into it yeah and I'm I'm I think a lot of people have you know kind of similar experiences with regards to Stephen King and their parents because mm -hmm. again I'm, I'm sure over the years and I know that that Losers Club does long episodes too so I know you all really get a chance to kind of dive into to the books and the topics you're talking about mm -hmm. um but yeah, I, th I think that for, for whatever reason, a generation of boomers were basically like, oh, this is this is OK reading. Like, yeah, it's mm -hmm. all the same stuff that I would ban on a movie. As my wife always says, because she was into books when she was a kid, her parents were like, oh, she's reading. It doesn't matter what she's reading. And she was like, I read a lot of Robert Jordan. So there was a lot of weird stuff happening in those books. Yeah, totally. I was not allowed to watch a lot of stuff. Um, so I would like record it. Like I would set my the VCR to record it. And then I would wake up at like two in the morning and sneak into the den to watch stuff that I wasn't allowed to watch. Um, but I mean, I could read pretty much whatever I w could sneak into my room. And my dad mm -hmm. had a lot of Stephen King on his shelf. So they, d they weren't like checking the bookshelf every day to make sure I wasn't reading. So, you know, I read I read a lot of that. I had a friend who that the same friend that I watched Fright Night at her house she had scary stories to tell in the dark at her house and so I remember going over there and just like ignoring her and just re devouring those books because I couldn't have them at my house and I just I I couldn't get enough um something I've talked about a lot on psychoanalysis is I grew up in a really really stressful house you know in a way that like I didn't understand um I did like I say it was kind it was like the shining without like the the violence you know it was just very stressful and I was just afraid all the time, you know, of things that were too big for me to understand. So horror helped me process that, you know, and so I think that's what I really was drawn to. Like, I remember reading when the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark movie came out a couple of years ago. I remember I was kind of diving into the history of the books and learning that they were banned in a lot of places, but that the defenders were like, no, this helps kids put a name on their fear or put a face on fear that is too much for them to process. And I think that's what horror was for me. And that's why I just, I couldn't get enough because it was helping me like process the things that I just didn't understand that were going on in my life. So, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about if I had in my household that open arms embrace of horror. And if I had, you know, basically started my journey earlier on, I, I won't rehash the journey. I keep talking about it on the podcast over and over again. So everyone knows, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I avoided it. I avoided it tremendously as a kid. So that was also because my family avoided it as well. And that did mm -hmm. create such an anxiety in me and that created such a fear of horror because, well, it was this thing in my household that no one watched, no one appreciated. It was the weird thing. It was the, you know, let's stay safe. Uh, my, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a cop, as I've said over and over again. So very regulation based, very rules based. And that raised a very paranoid, very anxious child who would think about death and things that, you know, maybe horror could have eased me into because we talked about this on psychoanalysis, you know, the idea of the return of living dead just being about death in your face. And yet mm -hmm. it's such an enjoyable movie and the way it's presented, you know, if, if I had 
maybe confronted death in that way at a much earlier age, would I have been having panic attacks just from seeing Chucky? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's just, it's it's hard to, it's just so hard to kind of put your finger on a lot of those things. And the more like therapy that I've been going to recently, a lot of why I was drawn to horror and the kinds of horror that I was drawn to is really kind of falling into place. And I was like, oh yeah, oh right. Also, it was like a dare, you know, it was a way to like overcome something and to like watch the really scary movie or read the really, really long book, you know, so that there was like a power in it for me too that I really, really loved. Yeah, all of my friends growing up were super Catholic, so there was no there was no like social cachet to diving into horror films or anything like that. You were mm-hmm. just you were just going just going to hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or or at least at least confession. I shouldn't oversell their condemnation of me. Yeah. Well, I, in the Bible Belt, I got a lot of that too, especially being a girl, you know, people just didn't really get it. I still get from my family like, I don't know how you watch that stuff. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right. Well, how did that <laughs> Talking about like when you were young and how that became kind of a, a coping mechanism for you, or at least a way for you to explore um, some of your own anxieties that, that you were feeling. How did that sort of develop as you got a little bit older? I mean, was that was it always something that was sort of simmering in, in the background or did you to kind of take ownership over it a bit in your teenage years and it became kind of like a, a cultural thing, a community thing, a social thing, as well as a coping mechanism? You know, it really hasn't been a social thing for me until like the past five years. Um, Hmm. It was, I could usually convince friends to go see movies with me. Like I remember another one of like my formative horror experiences is I remember going to see Scream in theaters and I I was 16. I had just gotten my driver's license. So I think it was one of the first places that I drove to. And so I have this really clear memory of walking into the theater and just being so excited and then just falling in love with that movie and, um, 90s slashers those are still that's my favorite um stretch or like my favorite genre of movie and I feel like there's a safety to those movies in a way that I think is really comforting to me which is probably why I could get a lot of people to go to them you know it wasn't I wasn't asking people to go to torture porn like you know I could get somebody to go see I know what you did last summer when I couldn't get somebody to go see Hostel with me later on you know um so I would watch them, but I was the one that was into it. You know, I was the one that really cared. I was the one who knew what was coming up and was kind of plugged in a little bit. And I mean, I laugh now. I was not at all plugged in compared to what I am now. But um, it was it was a fun thing. But I remember I took a lot of my VHSs to college with me and I would just watch them by myself because I didn't really have anybody in my life that loved horror the way I did or that really like I would try to get my dad to talk to me about Stephen King. And that's when I realized he was just kind of a casual fan. And I was like, no, but on page 70, he's saying this and like I couldn't really ever find anybody to engage with me and another one of those moments was when I watched um the loved ones and it was I can't remember maybe it had been seven or eight years ago relatively soon after it came out and nobody in my life had ever heard of that movie and I just remember dying to talk to somebody about this to like because I had that's right on the limit of how much I can handle like gore wise or at least at the time it was and I was dying to talk to somebody and I there was just nobody I could I didn't have anybody to talk to and so um I ran into a friend at a high school youth group reunion and he had been in Hollywood for a while trying to to be a writer and he loved horror. He was like the only person that I think, uh, and I remembered like 
growing up and kind of having off conversations with him, but he was more my brother's mm-hmm. friend. Um, and so he was like, Hey, I've got this idea for a podcast and we're looking for a girl. And so that was, and I ha- started finding a little community and I was like, okay, well I've got thoughts that are just spilling out and like exploding out of me to talk to somebody about. So that was, that was where I started to finally find a community with it. So. Yeah. And I want to, hit on the kind of like the nineties horror thing too, because I think, you know, we kind of take for granted the, the quality of nineties slashers. Um, and I, and many people talk about this, but sort of it's, it's always fun to look back and kind of think that that was sort of a period where horror went mainstream in a way that it hadn't for a long time before. And hasn't really since, right. Mm-hmm. They were casting mainstream young up and coming actors that already had a cachet. They weren't people that were years away from being established, but were kind of at the peak of their power already. You know, these were things that were not modestly budgeted. They were like mid-range Hollywood budgets with recognizable filmmakers associated with them. It's just, it, it's wild to think back, especially as good as horror is now and how, you know, you can't, no period in, in Hollywood history holds a candle to whatever current year we're living in mm-hmm. when it comes to horror quality and volume of horror. But the 90s just couldn't be topped in terms of the fact that it was it was a mainstream and a socially acceptable thing to do in a way. Like people went and saw Scream. People went and saw I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just it's wild to kind of think back on that. And it does make me wonder, like, yeah, how many how many how many people were able to introduce others to horror or were able to, like, you know, get people into a movie theater to see Scream who would never go see like not even want to see like fear street or something now right like mm-hmm. that, that we're just like oh everybody's talking about it so i have to go do it yeah yeah like h2o was my first halloween movie you know and i went to see it because i knew michelle williams from dawson's creek and and because josh hartnett is hot but that was like mm-hmm. an entryway in for me you know and i was always terrified of the slashers which i laugh at now because those are my favorite like i don't know i have a everything is my favorite but i love slashers but i was really scared of them i was terrified of jason and freddie and my Michael Myers. And so that was what got me in the door of the theater was just people I knew, somebody I knew on TV or this TV show that I watched, you know. Well, I think that's like, you know, the slashers that became popular, they all have the iconic villain. Uh, You're talking Mm -hmm. about Freddy, Jason, Chucky, XYZ, XYZ. So Mm -hmm. they become the faces of horror. They become the faces of Halloween. And that very much that's that's Chucky for me, where I was so afraid of this killer doll that was how, how high and you know watching the films now it is a bit hilarious to me that Mm -hmm. i was so afraid of this doll because i mean it really only stays straightforward horror for two movies if we're being honest uh Mm -hmm. the third movie very much starts leaning into the comedy of it way harder child's play 2 still has the comedy you know and then the fact that bride of chucky and seed of chucky were the commercials that gave me such a fright and caused me such anxiety and yet one of them is seed of Chucky. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we don't it, it, like, it's weird to kind of think about how we separate the iconic villain from the films themselves. When a lot of the times they just became at slashers themselves. Like we know how they ran their course and especially 80 slashers, it, you know, they stay scary for one or two. And then all of a sudden the sequel after sequel, you kind of have to go, how do we make this interesting? How do we differentiate? Well, humor yeah. always helped. And they just became like horror comedies at the time. So 
Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like uh, with those iconic villains, like I knew exactly who they were before I had ever even thought about watching a movie. So like in my mind, they were these nightmares, like these soulless monsters that were going to come kill me. And the thing about Stephen King is there's like he has got some terrifying stories and some terrifying villains, but there's a lot of humanity and warmth in the stories um, because I think he just writes his characters so well. And somebody like Michael and Jason seemed like just devoid of humanity and that terrified me and I was like this is I, I can't do this this is too far for me and now I watch it and I, I put it in context of a story and it's a lot easier and then you know then I discovered final girls and I was like okay I am in forever on this because that's just, they just have my heart so well, let me let me ask you because you you mentioned Stephen King, and of course you have a Stephen King podcast that's that is by podcast standards uh, a seasoned veteran at this point. Yeah. Um, what are your favorite Stephen King books? Oh, okay. My fit. My all time favorite is The Stand. It's the first novel I think I ever read um, by him, and it just has my heart. I absolutely love it. I've probably read it five ish times at this point, and listened mm-hmm. to it probably more than that um but my other four i can't rank i can't pick um between my babies but i love i've got an obsession with charlie mcgee from firestarter because the the book firestarter um it has got some big problems and i am aware of those but i love charlie mcgee and then um the shining pet cemetery um 112263 and misery mm. are my favorites so yeah it's interesting. Every time I ask people that, um, I feel like I'm doing it wrong because my favorite oh, Stephen yeah? King book, my favorite Stephen King books are Needful Thing and Insomnia. Um, oh, I love which, Needful which Things. Like, not, but neither of those books ever show up on anybody's like top of list. And and honestly, like Insomnia is is it it's always it's always been kind of relegated as a second tier King. Yeah. But I think in a lot of ways, it's it's one of his like you said, humanist, like one of his most deeply empathetic and humanist works that he's produced Mm -hmm. and it's sort of the like bag of bones end of end of life or end of career kind of the thing that he spent a lot of time in the 2000s working on it was that before that so like Mm -hmm. if you like bag of bones if you like some of his more recent work insomnia has always scratched that itch from me and i keep every time i I get an opportunity to ask a stephen king fan i'm like what are your favorites i'm just waiting for somebody else to say insomnia nobody Mm -hmm. ever does Insomnia is good. I do like it. The first time I read it, I did not like it at all. And I was like a teenager and I just don't think I was ready for it, you know. Mm. Uh, But it is in the stretch of my favorite King novels, which I kind of think of as the eclipse. It's not a trilogy. It's a quad quad cycle and that's quadrology yeah quadrology yeah yeah but it's um with gerald's game and dolores claiborne and then insomnia and then rose matter and that's where he's really exploring like intimate partner violence in a way that i've got some theories about how it ties into his sobriety and just i find it really fascinating and so that element of um insomnia has always really been intriguing to me um are you a tower head have you read the dark tower I've read The Gunslinger and okay. I keep meaning to do the problem with The Dark Tower is every single person I talk to about The Dark Tower is like, oh, my God, it plugs into every other book in the series. It right. Does, and he, yeah. he ultimately writes himself in as sort of the architect role of the the entire <laughs> literary universe of Stephen King novels. And I'm mm-hmm. like, do I got to like, do I really I feel like I need to go back and like at least read like three or four books. I don't need to read everything, but I at least need to go kind of like 
reimmerse myself in the world of King, like the Castle Rock world of King in particular, mm -hmm. in order to feel like I'm getting the most out of the Gunslinger series. So it's not just a commitment because it's seven books or whatever seven, that number yeah. is. Seven books. It's also a commitment because I feel like I needed to go in and refresh on a couple of key books before. And I'm sure somewhere online, somebody has a list of like the Stephen King books you really need to read before you read the Dark Tower series. Yeah. And I'm just like, that's, that's, that's a year. That is a year of easily a year of effort on my part. Yeah. It's a big commitment. I am not a huge tower head. That's not like, I, I, I love the second book, the drawing of the three. I was, have never been more surprised by how much I loved a book. And if I had not been a Stephen King completist, I would not have read the series. Mm. I'm really glad I did because I love the way it wraps up. But I mean, yeah, don't, I mean, try the second book and if you like it, then, you know, maybe keep going at your leisure, but like, don't I, like he wants us to enjoy his work, you know, and I feel like if we don't enjoy it, like he's okay with us not reading it, you know, so right. I don't know. But it does. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's an interesting tie into insomnia, which is why I asked, which is, you know, you might find intriguing. So, well, I haven't read I haven't read insomnia since I was 22 years old ish, oh, yeah? years old. So I am due for a reread, I think. Well, it is one, is one of the ones King that is one I would of the few. Yeah, I was going to say King is one of the rare authors that I actually do reread periodically because uh -huh. oh, yeah. I have the same relationship with film as I do with books, which is just like, like, do I should I read this? I watched this. Should I really spend my limited amount of time going back and revisiting something that I already know? Like, there's just so much stuff out there. Mm. But for King, for King, I make an exception. I, I reread Needful Things probably once every two years or so. Oh, yeah. Before I discovered podcasts, I just listened to Stephen King audiobooks over and over and over again. And then I was like, oh, oh there's other stuff I can listen to. Sorry, Stephen King. We, <laughs> we got rid of some of those audible royalties for you. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I still have them. I still listen to them occasionally. Donato, do you have any Stephen King you like? I've never asked you that question before. No, I, I have not broken into the literary world of Stephen King. I just have the adaptations. Uh, as oh, I'm sorry. It, it's, That's it, awful. It is totally fine. I've Listen, I've been checking my fantasy score. Don't worry about it. Like, I'm just, you guys oh, are doing winning. your thing. Oh, I am. James Robinson has 12 points already in the first half, so I'm doing okay. Oh, no. Uh-oh. All right. In any case. I'm about to be no. ahead by the end of this recording. <laughs> Listen, this by the, is like by the way, guys, if you if you do your math, you can figure out exactly within a five minute span of when and where we recorded this episode. I'm just saying <laughs> right. there's, there's no there's no mystery to this recording session. I'm happy to let the let the actual experts talk about something and uh, for me to sit back. This is this is why we have two hosts here. This is why we have co-hosts, because we get we get the breath of everything. We get to hear a little yeah. variety. That's right. And well, it's early you... in the season, but you're on the ropes already. So you need a win. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing too hot either, but but I will say if you ever want a list of Stephen King books to break in, I I it's like a fun challenge for me to find like just the right Stephen King book for somebody. So you know, my one know. author that I have a very good track record with, I haven't completed everything, but I've read most of is Michael Crichton. That is my one author mm. that I have de devoted my time to uh, mm. because I am typically watching movies and not reading. Uh, if I yeah. am, it's more likely comic books like. I got a hack slash things like that nature. So mm -hmm. that that's where my uh, reading time goes. No, I, I know this one actually, Jen, see if you back me up here. So like what we know about Donato is that he, he likes his signature villains. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's a bit more of an action. Like he, he likes a little bit of spectacle in his horror films. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that he's not averse at all to sort of like goofy or weird tonal switches. I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. It's the the Bachman companion piece to the Regulators. Um, oh, well, the Regulators is Bachman. Desperation is the King one. Desperation. Desperation that, yes, is uh, Stephen King. Regulators right, is okay. Richard Bachman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Desperation. 
My, yeah. For my money, desperation would be because it's got it's got a it's got a signature villain. It's goofy as hell. It's like all of the best and worst instincts of Stephen King on the oh, page. Oh yeah, it's nasty. And it's a top. Too. It's a top five book for me. I fucking love it. But it's just it is it is the demon wind of Stephen King novels. <laughs> there you go. That's all you. Had it to really kind of is. It's yeah. literally all is. you had to say. It is. Yeah. It's it's bananas. Yeah. But there's a. It's really thematically rich too. You know. But mm-hmm. also like there's like bodies ripping apart. So. Yeah. If you tell That's me it one. is the best and worst of someone, that is literally like one of my selling points of just like, oh, it gets messy? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Des- desperation. If you ever say, I want to start with King, Desperation is the book that's going to make or break your relationship with him. <laughs> nice. Because King King is that author that has like both, like he can do the like, you know, moody and purgatorial and like, you know, sad sack kind of genre that I like, but mm-hmm. it can also do like the goofball, like, Here's a, a seven foot tall Egyptian god whose skin is ripping that can only say talk. That, totally. like, that's the that's the kind of thing that I think that you would gravitate towards a little bit more too. There is a story called A Very Tight Place about a man who gets trapped in a porta potty and cannot okay. exit that's through the door. One. So yeah, he's he he writes about some some gross stuff. But yeah, he can also like really like like I sobbed at the end of Billy Summers, which is his newest one. Like he also really knows how to like wring your emotions out, which I think is what I really like about him a lot. You know, is he just he writes about his characters is just phenomenal. Well, then, like yeah. on, on the counter side, though, to bring the question of you know what's your favorite King novel? I mean, like what is your favorite King adaptation in that sense? Then what like what film do you think actually nails the essence of King the best, or maybe it doesn't, and that's why the film works. Um, it's not desperation. I'm just going to throw that out oh, there right no. now. Although it is it not desperation. <laughs> it does have Stephen Weber in it, which is a selling point. But yeah, it is. I, that, that is one of the rare films that I turned off because I love the novel so much. And I like started it and I was like, done, done. Yeah. Can't do this. I have a life to live. Yeah. It, yeah. A lot of the miniseries are. Um, I think my favorite one is Gerald's Game. I absolutely love it that's a book that really means a lot to me it's just right outside my top five and I you know it's funny to be talking about it now but I'm a huge Mike Flanagan fan you know I think he like speaks Mm -hmm. my emotional horror language so I watched that and I mean if you've read Gerald's Game you know the majority of it takes place in the head of a character so like everybody was like well this is unfilmable how can you make a movie about this and I think the way he did it um, and the way he kind of staged it and brought out a lot of the themes, but made some smart changes. Um, I just loved, I know the ending gets a little bit of criticism because it's got that like Flanagan schmaltz at the end, you know, which is straight out of the book too. So it's a little bit of King too, but that is like therapy for me, that movie. It's just, it, it's amazing. I love it. Um, and then, you know, I got a soft spot for the mist too. It's good. <laughs> yeah. I think the, I think the mist is pretty classic stuff. I don't mm-hmm. like, I don't like The Shining. I've, I'm on record as having said that. I don't like The sh- I, I don't like The Shining. I don't like do The Shining either. No. The book is amazing. And I could mm-hmm. go off on a whole soapbox about the difference between the book and the movie. I just, yeah, the movie is, I don't like it. It's, I want more from it, you know? Like, I don't know. I have a lot, a lot of thoughts about that. Well, I don't, I don't want, oh man, I could talk about Stephen King forever. Um, I don't <laughs> want to, to completely take away from the film that we are talking about today, which isn't a Stephen King film. So last question before we take a quick break. Um, let's talk, because I think this will tie in in a minute. Let's mm-hmm. talk a bit about your work with um, Psychoanalysis, your horror podcast as well, because Donato and I have both, both been on it, so we're biased, but we think it's great. Um, <laughs> but really, really and truly, the lens of mental health that you and your co-hosts are bringing and, and analyzing films through, I think is 
I mean, you know, we're we're kind of in an era where I think we're starting to really appreciate the the positive role that horror plays with a lot of people. Um, you know, for everything from like a coping mechanism to like understanding concepts of sexuality and gender through horror, it's it's all been subtext. But I think it's now moving a little bit more forward in how we think and write about these movies on a, at, at like a really broad level. Mm-hmm. So, talk a little bit about kind of how that came to be, and um, you know what your what like what your I want to say success stories, but like <laughs> what what inspires you to to keep going with that, knowing that you guys are dealing a lot of times with some really heavy stuff. Yeah. Um, it is, it's often heavy and that's why like every other week we do a comfort horror episode, which are the ones that you two have been on where we kind of they take the pressure off just a little bit and we talk about a mm-hmm. fun movie and then we go back to talking about the, the movie about grief, you know, or depression. Um, but so I, you know, I said, I think I was really drawn to horror because it helped me understand fear, like the fear that I experienced as a kid. And, the older I got, I think the more I understood how much horror like helps me understand who I am, you know, and I say this to people who say they don't like horror, like every, we, we use it to understand who we are and what we care about because we all tell these horror stories. We say, if I was going to die tomorrow, what would I do today? And if my house was burning down, what would I save? Like, those are horrific things. It's death and like destruction of everything you love. And those are stories that we use to to help us understand what we care about and who we are and what we want to spend our time with. And so I think that's like horror helps me process that. And I had thought about doing a show like this when I started going to therapy and I started talking about um, Gerald's game was one of the first ones that I talked about. I was like this, this really helped me process uh, something in a particular way. And it's still something that I use as like a visual cue, um, as like kind of a safety place. Um, but yeah. And so I, but I lost track of how many times I had spoiled a movie for my therapist because I wanted to talk about the ending and I wanted to talk about what this movie meant to me in relation to like my mental illness or my, like what I was going through in that moment. I was like, there's, there is something here. And I wish that more people talked about mental health and I wish that um, more people were kind of dissecting these things. And I wasn't really seeing anybody do that. Like I would watch a movie and I would try to see what had been written about it. And I would see a lot of times, like I think about The Babadook or I think about um, like a movie like like Mungo. And I was finding a lot of people writing about how it connects to mental health, but nobody really saying anything about it, like saying what that experience was like or what it helped them understand or helped them process. And I just found that I wanted to talk about this. I wanted to write about this. Like I, if there are two things I write about, it's feminism and it's feelings. And I just, I want everyone to be more in touch with how they feel about things and I think horror is the perfect way to do that and so it just kind of made sense to do a podcast about it and kind of tackle stuff and so that's kind of what what keeps me going like the amount of people that have reached out and said like because we're still kind of a smaller pod but just saying like you guys helped me get through the pandemic or like you guys are talking about things that nobody else is talking about or like Mm -hmm. we're having really hard conversations about things um, that I think are important conversations to have, but that are scary and they're hard. And so it's, it's, I, you have, I've just really enjoyed kind of getting to know Mike and Laura um, in a really kind of personal way and sharing about stuff and it helps me process. So part of it is selfish. Like I just want, I want to talk about these things, but 
you know, if, if somebody else hears it and feels safer talking about it to someone else, then that's kind of why I want to do it, you know? That was yeah, a long, I, long and rambling answer, but no, it was a great answer. And, and I like the fact that you talked about, I think that, that a lot of times in film criticism, especially when it comes to kind of like cultural or social criticism baked into that, I think a lot of writers are really good at identifying and I'm as guilty of this as anyone identifying, um, things like, you know, um, references to mental illness, you know, or, or like, for example, you know, I watched, um, the night house, which is a, you mm, know, it's mm-hmm. just a phenomenal performance, um, by Rebecca Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even I kind of watching it, I was reading afterwards that people were like doing deeper dives into how it actually correlates so strongly to the stages of grief and like mm-hmm. the emotional processes that go into that. I'm like, that's, that's the, you know, I can, I can write about it and I can say, you know, she's experiencing trauma and that's true. But like the, the ability for people to parse through what that means from a behavior standpoint, what that means from like, you know, the actual changes, the, the, the hybridization, I think of film critics, that there are people that sort of have these multi-mixed backgrounds that they have one foot in the realm of mental health and are also film critics and can bring kind of like a really lived experience of this sort of stuff that's that's to me that's so cool that's it's so great that we have people that that come from like diversity equity inclusion backgrounds that can write about representation representation mm-hmm. in film that it's not just a bunch of people that are like i recognize sad and that's kind of like right. where the discussion ends so mm-hmm. it's it's always been like I'm, I'm i'm really love what y'all are doing because you're bringing that depth and crunchiness and meatiness to it it's not just like this is a movie about depression it's like let's talk about the stages of depression. Let's talk about how the characters move through those and what they're meant to represent because that's mm-hmm. happening on the other side. Obviously these filmmakers are bringing in folks. They're going to kind of like explain to them and show them and help them write about this and ground it in actual medical research and study. Um, and to not give it the same kind of weight on our side as film critics. It's just, it's so neat that there are people out there that are, that are doing that now. And it's not just people that are sort of generalizing about things that probably shouldn't be generalized about. Yeah. Yeah. I really really loved it and learned a lot about myself through talking about it you know but yeah well let's put all of that to the test because when we come back (laughs) we're going to talk about a film that i have basically been calling when my wife asked me what it was about i just said intrusive thoughts so ah yeah when when we're back we're going to talk about 2018's eat me so we'll see you in a second Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this episode and a special thanks to our patrons who help support the writers that write for CertifiedForgotten.com. Every episode, we uh, we let them ask us a couple of questions. No holds barred. We answer what they have to say. Donato, who do we have and what are they asking us this week? The first one we have is from Mr. Nathaniel, a new member to the Patreon. And the question is quite simple because uh, Nathaniel is doing a little recreational horror rewatches the way that uh, they worded it and they are just diving into movies like The Descent and things in nature so the question is simple Uh, I just watched The Descent and The Ritual and I'm starting to really love this little micro genre so for my bumper can I ask the two of you to talk about your favorite outdoor recreation related horror films so mine is easy it is Adam McDonald's Backcountry, 2014 horror film starring Missy Peregrim, who you will know from either Stick It or FBI, which really depends on what kind of a life you lead. Um, but it is a very simple tale about a young couple that goes hiking in the woods, and there's a bear. And I don't want to say much else other than that. Um, that's probably all you need to know going on. It is probably one of the more tense 
outdoor films I've ever seen. And as somebody who grew up in Alaska, yeah, that's uh, that's why Andrew will go camping with me when, when we visit Alaska or just anywhere, really, even in parts of the world where there aren't any bears. I'm glad I asked you before recording this bumper of what you were picking because I was going to pick the same thing. I adore backcountry. It is very good. It is the easiest pull quote ever, but it is Jaws for camping. Like, it, it is to a T that tense and that intense because we're talking about camping. I'm ready Acknowledge for my got. pun. Acknowledge my pun. I'm not going to do it. No, Which acknowledge it. I have a movie called A Lonely Place to Die. It is a 2011 film uh, directed by Julian Gilby. And this is a movie about mountain climbing. And it is specifically about climbing the Scottish Highlands. Except when Melissa George, who is our lead actress here, uh, goes climbing over the Scottish Highlands, she finds a kidnapped girl. And finding that kidnapped girl leads to finding other not great things. So thus ensues a chase away from evildoers while scaling mountainsides and navigating uh, crumbly cliffs, let's say. So uh, her and her party basically have to survive nature and also survive something that is uh, chasing them from behind. That's it. That's all I want to say. And it, it like I don't do great with heights. I can do like roller coasters and stuff that go fast. But if we're just talking about standing still and looking down, that kind of height stuff. This movie really triggered some like anxieties for me in a good way. So like mm-hmm. it really hits that vibe well. Well, there you go, Nate. Thank you for uh, supporting Certified Forgotten, and welcome to the most stressful double feature you're having in your life. Speaking of double features, or maybe even triple features, I don't know, let's get into it. Uh, Ian has our second Patreon bumper for the day, and it is, you're throwing a Halloween bash. What would be your perfect Halloween movie lineup? And I'm going to go one step further and say, Monocle, you can only pick Certified Forgotten movies. Hmm. All right. I like this. Um... So there aren't necessarily a lot of themes that all of our movies fall around because everybody kind of brings what they want to the table. But you gave me a little bit of a heads up, so I had like a little bit of time to prepare. And I think the one thing that I'm drawn to with some of the titles that I've enjoyed that we talked about on the show are films that are sort of single location, psychological thriller, man versus beast or man versus man kind of things. But like that that sense of confinement is part of it. So the three, the three that I would choose as a triple feature are Rattle the Cage, burning bright and dead mary each of which are very different one is sort of like prison cell drama thriller the other is about a tiger in a house and the other other is about you know invoking a, a evil ghost woman and having her kill all of your friends but what they do what each of them does and does well i think is utilize a single space um you use economy of space in order to tell a scary story pretty well so that would be my central theme is is use of space. And those are the three films, Rattle the Cage, Burning Bright, and Dead Mary that I would choose. So I will keep mine a tad bit. I'm going to make it easier for me because I'm going to do horror comedies. And this is what I do. And I tweeted this out. If, if you're going to do a triple feature on Halloween or around Halloween, you want to have a good time with some of the movies we have covered. Uh, I'm going to say let's let's use Patchwork. Let's use Deep Murder. And let's use The Convent. And if you go in that order, I think it is going to be quite the trip because basically patchwork, you get the, uh, we've talked so much about Tyler McIntyre's work and, you know, patchwork specifically on an entire episode with Amelia. So I don't really need to say much more about it. Go listen to the episode if you want to hear more about patchwork and why it's awesome. Deep murder. Trace brought us that. It is a (laughs) softcore slasher parody is the the quickest, Mm -hmm. most succinct way I can say that. Uh, But like that, but good. Because yeah, I like, know that everybody's going to hear that and be like, mm, but that, but good. 
Yeah, it, it is that, but good. And you get stuck in the porno itself. It doesn't take place on the set of a porno. It, it goes adult swimming away and it stays there. So I had so much fun with that. I think I've watched it maybe three or four times since the episode and I just love it more. And then the convent, 2000s horror, Mike Mendez. And I can't get away from how quintessentially 2000s this movie is. It's like going to a miniature golf course that's like black lit and glow in the dark, except it's horror and nuns. So there you go. If you've been paying close attention, if you are looking in spooky season for a few movie recommendations covered on the podcast and elsewhere, we gave you six, eight, eight titles to choose from during this bumper. So my friends, that's a, lot. That's a good amount. Go forth and conquer. And uh, we'll see you back after the break. It's movie time. Okay, so Eat Me is a 2018 horror film. It is written and starring Jacqueline Wright, who is a Los Angeles playwright. Um, Eat Me is actually based on a 2005 play that debuted in Los Angeles. So this is a uh, stage to screen adaptation. And when you watch it, I think it carries a lot of its uh, stage DNA into the film version as well. But the description that you'll find on any streaming platform near you is a suicidal woman and a violent home intruder test the limits of human endurance and the boundaries of forgiveness over the course of one torturous night. It is effectively a two-person play as Jacqueline Wright is Tommy and Brad Carter is Bob. It is directed by Adrian Cruz. And I joked before the break that it is basically intrusive thoughts of the movie. <laughs> Whoo, it is basically intrusive thoughts of the movie. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it other than that. So... I got to we don't normally we don't normally do content warnings but I feel like if you're going to watch this film because we recommend it I want to throw out that the especially the first 25 30 minutes of the film um, deal with issues of rape they deal with issues of domestic violence and sexual violence there is a very very strong subsection of incest that runs through the movie as well so there are there is hard stuff here to watch and if you skip out on it nobody's going to blame you but I should also say that sometimes we invite a guest and they ask how do I pick a movie? And sometimes we invite a guest and they're like, fucking, this is my movie. <laughs> when we invited Jen on the podcast, this was the one and only movie that she was ready to talk about. <laughs> so let's start, Jen, with you talking about this film. And I, I actually went back on Twitter because every time I watch a movie, I, I search the title and uh, people I follow on Twitter to see what the conversation's going. Mm -hmm. And you've been talking about this movie pretty much since the day and date it was released. Yeah. So what is it about Eat Me that you love so much? Um, well, I, it's, it's complicated. This is such a, a complex movie, but I have to say like all week in my head has been that song from the Adams Family Values, the eat me, sauteed or barbecued. That's always what comes into my head when I watch this movie. Um, this is, this is a really challenging movie. And I remember I found it when I was, um, part of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network and we, if we wanted to vote in the year-end awards, we had to watch all of the movies in the category. So I was watching this and I was like, okay, well, I've got to make it through because I want to be able to vote in this category. And I don't even remember what it was. It was probably best male performance and best female performance. But um, my friend Patrick Anderson, who uh, still writes for Modern Horrors, he is the one who had nominated it and he was really championing it. And he was like, I think you'll really like this. Um, mm -hmm. And I about 30 minutes in, I had to turn it. I stopped it and I had to slack him and ask him to spoil some stuff for me. I was like, how bad is this going to get right around the time he gets the knife out and he starts talking about surgery? I was like, OK, I need yeah. to know where this is going. I need to know how much I'm in for because I, I wanted 
to finish it, but I didn't want to watch that. Um, and I think there's just so much in this. I think I, it's funny. I had not thought about it in context of intrusive thoughts, but I can see that now. And I think there's just a lot here. I don't know if I would call this a rape revenge film, um, I think it shares a lot of the same DNA as rape revenge. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of empowerment in it. There's also, there's kind of an exploration of toxic masculinity. I feel like that I find really interesting. Um, it's really nasty, but it's nasty and challenging in a way that I think is really honest. And that's, I think what I'm drawn to here is that I feel like this movie and Jacqueline Wright is it's just fearless. And it's these are the things that we are ashamed to say. These are the things that we are afraid if we say no one will love us anymore or that our lives are effectively over. And so we don't say them and we hide them. And that just perpetuates that shame. And I think this movie gives me a catharsis of like no it's okay to release that you know and that's that is shame that I'm carrying myself not shame that other people are putting on me so yeah that's in a nutshell <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna ask you a hard question here and I don't think that there is necessarily any pat like agreed upon answer but the film opens with a suicide attempt mm. and then follows that almost immediately with two rapes in relatively short order, mm -hmm. um, both of, of Tommy, the main, the main character. So people are going to struggle, right? The same yeah. way that you struggled, the same way that I struggled. Here's the tough question. What makes that valuable to a narrative? When is that exploitative? And, and you can speak just in, solely for you as a viewer. <clears throat> when you see sexual violence on screen, taking in the, the entire direction of the film and knowing where it goes, what is that line for you between exploitative and um, transformational, cathartic, you know, like important to the narrative, et cetera? Well, I think the easy answer would be who is telling the story. Like if it is a woman or a survivor telling the story, I think that is where I feel like a certain um, kind of empowerment in telling that narrative. Um, I I do really love rape revenge films. I find a lot of strength in them. And I am a survivor. And so I watch this and I think it is a hard film to watch. But the rapes in this are depicted in a way that I don't find. Um, it, it's not, I don't think it's graphic the actual assaults I don't think are graphic, but what I feel like is the entire assaults and the entire ordeal is the closest thing that I see if I can say this in a way that makes sense. That is what it actually feels like. That is like, I think a lot of times people see a sexual assault and they see sex, you know, especially if it's not something that you've experienced or something that you've really lived with. And I think the assault in this, it's demeaning. It is terrifying in ways, but it's also like really embarrassing and dehumanizing in a way that I think just kind of showing an assault doesn't always capture like I watched the first 20 minutes of that and I'm like yeah that's what it feels like that's what like that's what is going through your mind like what is the next thing that's going to happen and why like it's it's I feel like it puts you in the mindset of experiencing something like that and I think there's value in that because I think it's a hard thing for people who haven't experienced it to understand you know they it's mm. you know what I mean 
Yeah, no, I, I understand. And I obviously can't speak to that experience at all, but um, we've talked in, and I think we did it just as much last week and with our, the last episode in bag boy, lover boy, the idea of like sexual violence that is sexual versus sexual violence that is not intended to be um, like, like sex, like um, not sexual. What's the word I'm looking for? sexy is not the right word but you know you know what i mean like it's yeah, the distinction yeah. between when when this is supposed to be or when this intentionally or otherwise blurs into the line of like titillating and yeah. is that sort of exploitative where you're supposed to be like this is bad but also aren't you secretly kind of enjoying it a little bit exactly that's, that's yeah. always a, a, a lot of filmmakers especially a lot of male filmmakers kind of fall into that line and you're like well that's that's like you probably you cut that scene from your script you have no idea what you're doing yeah but you can't really watch this and I feel like enjoy it in any kind of way. You know, right. this is this is hard. And so I was thinking about that too because, you know, I am very sensitive to content warnings and trigger warnings and I understand like triggers are, like I have a lot of triggers and so there are some things I don't want to watch. But there's, like I watched the Poughkeepsie tapes a couple of years ago and it's just been stuck in my head in this way. Like it's helped me really process a lot of things too. And there's a line at the end where he says, um, the, one of the doctors is talking about Cheryl and she says, and some things she experienced are too horrible even to talk about. And I think I understand what he's saying there, but that always kind of hit me as like, but then she's the only one who knows about it. She's, she's alone in this experience. And so I think like there's value in a film like this that kind of like helps people who are, have not had experiences like this understand what it is and what it's like, because mm -hmm. like we need people who don't who haven't experienced it and don't have the triggers and don't have the trauma to help us change things you know like it, it can be really hard to talk about and it can be really hard to like challenge systems if you're coming from a place of trauma mm -hmm. but I think something like this kind of helps you understand why change is necessary in a visceral way rather than an intellectual way yeah and I feel like I, I, that was a tough question. So I feel like I want to I want to ask an easier question as a follow up. Okay. Um, and I'm gonna I'm actually gonna start with Donato because I just I want to get both of your reactions to this. Knowing that this was a stage play first, you walk into a movie theater because a friend has a ticket, or you walk into a theater in Los Angeles in 2005 because a friend has a ticket because they know somebody involved in the production. They're like, hey, come see the show. You go in cold. You watch this happen, not on a screen with a soundtrack and like a little bit of emotional cues from everything that like a filmic environment does, but sort of in real time with two people on a stage with all the uncomfortable dead space and dead silences that come with that. How do you think, how do you think you feel about Eat Me as a play, Donato? I mean, you're, you're looking at the friend and just going, it's a Friday night. What the fuck did we just do this for? <laughs> totally. <laughs> no, I, I mean, like, listen, the reaction that both of you have stated so far is 100% correct. It is so much to endure, whether it is a play, whether it is a film, uh, for the first 30 minutes, for the first 40 even. But where it goes from there and what it tries to tell between Tommy and Bob and Tommy has tried to kill themselves and is now back amongst the living. Bob clearly has no qualms about being the biggest piece of shit the world has ever seen, but... Uh, it, in in a way, it takes a turn into rom-com territory. And it, and in a way, it becomes like a rom-com through the lens of fucking Vincent Gallo and Waters. And like, it mm -hmm. is just this really discursive, uh, sorry, discursing. Wow, that's a word. Uh, <laughs> discursing. Disgusting. I mean, it fits. <laughs> depraved. 
everything it is showing you is what we are supposed to see as irredeemable. And yet it's also having this underlying message that uh, no matter how broken you are, no matter how much you think uh, it is time to give up and that there is literally no one for you. Well, there might be someone for you and they might be someone who thinks their mother is the most beautiful one in the world and that they fucked her, but <laughs> there is still someone in the world. And like, there is a bit of God forbid me using the word, but comfort in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. had, answering the play question, um, <laughs> getting back to that part of it, I, I'm really engaged to see this as a play. I like, I'm really engaged to see two theatrical actors on stage playing this out in real time because the performances are largely not even, there's no comparison, the best things in this movie. I mean, Everyone is firing all cylinders, how they're able to deliver the lines and the passion that they bring to every single one, no matter how vile the act is. I mean, just getting it out there. There is an entire scene where Tommy is mocking Bob because Bob keeps threatening to rape her. And Tommy at this point, again, she's tried to kill herself. She has nothing left. And she's just like, I fucking dare you, you piece of shit. Like you limp dick Mm -hmm. piece of whatever. And there is there is a, a moment in this film where they are screaming back and forth at each other. I'm raping you. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you're raping me. And it's just them screaming the word rape each other as it's happening. And it does go back to what you were saying, though. It, it is literally her emasculating him while he's trying to do this thing because mm-hmm. he is. It, it's the threat, the threat, the threat. Then it happens and he can't even. It, it is so fucking much to deal with. And yet that still births these really fucking deep conversations that happen afterwards. And those monologues are where Monogle was saying before his first reaction 30 minutes in is I'm turning this off. This is the worst thing we've ever covered on the podcast versus holy shit. This ended in a way that I bring up rom-com again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I won't pretend like I know exactly where I land on this, but I don't think it was too far off to say that I was like, this was in the running for one of the worst things I've ever seen. And now I don't know how to feel about it at the end of it. Um, and, and, and in a good way, like, I don't know how to feel about it in a good way. I'm not like, did I hate this? I'm like, did I like this? <laughs> I couldn't have liked it. Cause that, that first 40 minutes is still there. Yeah. Um, and that just, that, I think that speaks to just how, I don't know, like how much when you strip away all the artifice and the roles that these characters think that they're supposed to be playing, which is much of what the first 40 minutes is, you know, there's the metatextuality of like the rape revenge film, whether this is or isn't that strictly speaking, these are the archetypes. These are the characters that these two actors are trying to play. And then you you kind of strip away all of that and you're left with just two people. And suddenly they're having these conversations that are on par with like any of the indie, you know, um, anything that you would see at an independent horror film festival i'm thinking of uh, after midnight or things like this like in their own way like really powerful and sincere conversations about life and desire and hopes and dreams and you're like what 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 is like i'm hmm, okay so it's it's a it was a movie of swings where i just i had a yeah i had a really hard time knowing how i feel about it. i still have a really hard time knowing how i feel about it but yeah. I want to ask. I want to ask you too, Jen. Like, what do you think? And and maybe more broadly speaking, what do you think about this? Knowing you've known this for a while now, but this being translated from a play to a movie, what does that add? What does that subtract? Because we always think of theatrical adaptations in terms of like, oh, how does it compare to the the, the play version? Mm-hmm. This feels like a particularly weird thing to talk about because there are, you know 
diegetic non-diegetic elements that are that are thrown in there there are soundtrack elements there is like dream sequences sort of or like fantasy Mm -hmm. sequences that are kind of embedded in it and i'm like i'm trying to unpack how that would work on a stage versus on a screen so i'm I'm kind of curious is that one of us that's lived with this for the longest period of time how how you kind of feel about what the film version of this adds what it what it affords these characters that a stage version might not well i think it's interesting because I think intimacy is probably my answer. Like when you see this, like it's, you see them up close and personal, you know, you're not five rows back or you're not in the back of the theater. Um, So I think there is an intimacy in this uh, situation. I think you really do kind of feel immersed in it. You know, you feel like trapped in this house with them in a way that I don't think you would feel like if you went to see this on a stage that said, um, I can't imagine being the actress in this and doing this every night, you know, like mm-hmm. repeatedly doing this. Cause I think there is, there's a separation when you're watching something on a screen versus watching real human beings in front of you performing these things. And so I don't know what it would be like to watch this in the audience. I think that it would be a different kind of intimacy, you know, like the intimacy of really seeing the pain on her face or seeing the pain on his face or really kind of like allowing them to whisper the really quiet moments you know in a way that is harder to do on a stage but then on the other hand you're not watching this live and you're not you're not it's not as visceral you know so the live element for me uh I I did the creep LA haunt last year and seeing things live and the way you are able to push the same boundaries that movies push and yet live for some reason makes it so much more real and so much mm-hmm. more invasive uh mm-hmm. where i mean like number one let's be honest like eat me the play is not playing the staple center even if you're <laughs> if you get the nosebleed tickets for the uh, the indie showing at your local theater you're still probably pretty close to that and mm-hmm. i bring up creep la because this is just it, this is such an offhanded example but i you know we see we see male nudity in a way in movies and mm-hmm. it, when it is played by an actor, you know, maybe it's the evil role and it is used in a way to kind of a demon walking at you completely naked has this like unsettling effect. Mm-hmm. I'm walking through Creep LA and it is this idea of an Instagram trap that gets taken over by demons and all of a sudden like the Instagram parts like start coming at you and I'm just walking by like trying to navigate the area and I turn to my left and there is just a... <laughs> buck naked dude like basically walking at me with this like creepy ass mask on and just seeing it in person is still like those intimate things those things that are screen versus life uh, i mm-hmm. think the intimacy adds so much more to it and talking about seeing it live i think it makes it even harder to watch if i put that in context i mean it, like it did its job. Let's put it that way. It's did its job yeah. live because it is just a more unsettling thing to see in person versus, um, and that's that's the effect that it's going for. It's not unsettling to see what I saw. Like that's mm-hmm. that's life. Like that, that I'm okay with <laughs> with the human body. It's more like the character that they create and the, and what they're doing with it. That worked a hell of a lot better when you're standing a few feet away versus separated on a screen. Yeah, yeah, well, and I think when you're watching a filmmaker. Like they, they can choose the camera angles and they can choose like I'm thinking of the scene where she gets up on the table and like if that's in a theater like 
you have a lot less control over what someone sees and what somebody is watching. Whereas like if something didn't feel right when you're filming, you could redo it. Like there's a safety there. And so I feel like there's a risk involved with doing a live show of something like this that I think would, I imagine would feel kind of electric and would transfer into the audience with somebody who is able to do a performance like this. And Jacqueline Wright, I think was in this because you couldn't find another actress who would do it, which I can understand. I wouldn't yeah. want to uh, play this role either. <laughs> yeah, and in interviews, um, something that I that that I think knowing it, you can kind of reflect on the film and and feel it. Is Jacqueline Wright talks about the fact that that they shot the film pretty much in chronological order because mm-hmm. they were shooting it in her apartment in Los Angeles, um, and as the film is going on, they were basically wrecking the set because Bob, played by Brad Carter is, you know, as, as he's posturing in the first 30 minutes and Jen, to your point, kind of being the, the toxic male, like sexual assault person that he thinks that he should be and is, mm-hmm. he, he's trashing the place as he goes. So in order to account for that, not to have to do like all the complicated resets and continuity stuff they would otherwise, um, she says that they filmed it pretty much from start to finish in the in chronological order for the film. And I think that does an interesting thing where... You, I don't know. You can kind of feel that. You can kind of feel that the, the, the like the characters were moving because there's such a strong sense of progression in both of their arcs, where like the exhaustion of the first forty minutes of the film, when they sort of like play out the roles that they think they should be and are kind of left with only who's left, um, and so they become more introspective and become a lot more relatable as characters, if only to each other and not to us as an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that there is such a such a progression of how those characters develop to each other it would be it would be hard it's hard for me for me to imagine them shooting in one room where she's being basically like beaten and stalked by bob and then resetting in another room and having them shoot a scene where they're both being vulnerable with each other and then resetting in a third room and then going back to like the acts of violence like Mm -hmm. it's you know and it might just be the fact that these are these are for the most part, like stage professionals, right? So they think about it as kind of like a chronological thing. But I can't, I can't imagine telling the story out of order. It would, ugh, it would feel awful to try and shoot this in anything other than chronological order. Oh, totally. It's such a journey, you know, like this film, I Mm -hmm. feel like one of the things that I love about it, and I have a hard time saying I love this film because it is really challenging, but I love the way it makes me feel by the end. But I think if you don't get through that first part, you don't get that catharsis. Like it's like going through the tunnel versus like going over the bridge. You know, you have to get into the grossness of it to really find that empowerment. But yeah, I don't, I can't imagine trying to film. I can't imagine filming this at all. Like I feel so like the performances I feel like are so strong that I lose. It's one of those films that I lose track of the fact that it's not real. And I'm just so really engrossed with it, Um, especially knowing that she wrote this. So I know I think there's probably a lot of her in Tommy, you know. Yeah. And I I should add, too, that we talk about this as sort of like these first 40 minutes and then you get to this trans. We're not talking one cut of the dead here. We're not talking about something (laughs) that is like totally, completely different. And then suddenly you're experiencing a whole different movie. These characters are very much the same characters but they're tapping into different parts of themselves. So the movie doesn't, the movie doesn't stop being incredibly uncomfortable at the 40 minute mark. You just start to view these characters in a new way. The, the five minute long monologue about incest does not happen until like the final 15 minutes of the movie. But at that yeah. point, you can you kind of feel for the guy, which is a really weird thing to say, but I just, I want to mod, uh, kind of modulate everybody's 
expectations going in. This is not a movie where like if you get through the first 30, 40 minutes, suddenly it like unfolds to some beautiful different thing. Right. It's still ugly. It's just ugly in a way that you really care about. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the ugliness. Like, I think what kind of like Donato, what you were kind of talking about, about there will be somebody for you. I think that's what I get from this, except I think it's more of a personal thing. I I watch this and I think there is nothing that I can do that I can't come back from. You know, there is nothing because I think we all carry this little secret shame in our pockets. Like and, and the silly version is like, oh, I don't recycle my cans or like I don't see I can't remember all of the laundry list that she hates herself for. But like we all have that and we all think like if they find out who I am, really they won't love me and I can't come back from that. And my life is essentially over. And what I get from this is that there is nothing that will make me unlovable. There is nothing that will make me unworthy of somebody caring about me, even if it's not romantic or even if it's somebody that I hate, somebody is going to care about me. And I think if you don't go to those depths of really ugly, really taboo. Like he's talking, you could say the same thing about Brad. Like he's talking about one of, I'm sorry, Brad Carter, Bob, the character, one of the most taboo things that a person could do. He's talking about sleeping with his mother and you still are able to find empathy. And I think that's the power of this movie for me is that there is nothing that I can do that would make me unlovable. And there's nothing that anyone can do that would make them unworthy of someone caring about them, you know? Yeah, and it's also evaluating the art uh, for the entire narrative, all the whiplash, all of the messiness, all of the unevenness, it, everything creates the final product. It's like you said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you turn off the movie 30 minutes in, you're going to have a hell of a different perception on what the filmmaker was trying to do versus watching the entire thing. And the journey is so essential because it mm-hmm. unlocks everything. You don't get from point A to point Z without hitting all the steps along the way. Uh, it yeah. just doesn't exist. But, you know, I mean, like, the, it's that same conversation that's kind of happening in a way right now. Fantastic Fest and the sadness. Uh, a lot of people are up in arms because there is a scene or two in there that basically, you know, they think it should have been a trigger warning or it should have been shown or all of these things. But the conversation is about the scenes themselves. And like, listen, there should be a trigger warning. Like for people that don't want to see that right now, like, of course, like you should not mm-hmm. be forced to see something that will dredge up something. Uh, but I mean, the conversation, though, it, it's not about the entire film. It's about two certain scenes taken completely out of context. And it, it just the conversation kind of spirals out of there, you know, and I think the same thing would happen in Eat Me if you approached Eat Me from the sense and just talked about the first 30 minutes, you would be losing so much of the depth and weight that happens once the film ends. And mm-hmm. again, does it end on a shot that is literally honoring bob's incestuous passions yes it does uh-huh. <laughs> but do they finally both feel peace in this really really weird moment uh that is shot on a beach as he is suckling on tommy's teeth and <laughs> the camera just pans out yeah they mm-hmm. have and maybe they had to murder to get there maybe they had to do unspeakable things to get there and maybe they didn't have to that is that is part of the conversation the mm-hmm. other part of the conversation is addressing every single moment in this film and not just trying to basically tear it down for, you know, two parts that you thought are unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, eat me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we could, we could talk about this film for another hour yeah. um, and probably end up kind of in the same place we are now. Um, 
And we didn't we didn't even talk about the scene with the suicide note, which for my money is the moment that the movie became something different and better. Oh um, yeah, when he says you're skipping over the parts you don't like, that's when it had my heart. I was like, right, oh yeah. That if you if you decide to watch it after listening to this podcast, um, that is if you it, I will say this: if you get through the dinner table conversation about the suicide note and you're still not feeling it you can probably bail because if that's, if that's not the moment that that has worked for you, if the movie hasn't turned around for you or at least become more manageable for you at that point, then it's not going to. So that's there, there's a caveat for you, but I do want to end this as we always do um, by talking about sort of the place of this movie going forward. So, you know, this is, this is a small film, small release. Um, Obviously we're talking about it on this show. So it didn't really, although it did have, um, it did have some some high profile reviews. The Hollywood Reporter reviewed it. It was reviewed in a couple other places, so it got like some of the marquee reviews that you want if you're a, if you're you know a, a filmmaker, a playwright, bringing your work to the film. It also has a really cool poster, which is neither here nor there. I just wanted to make <laughs> sure I got that on the record. Mm-hmm. Where is this film going to land? Like, what future is there for Eat Me outside of people like us? Is there a future for Eat Me outside of, of the, the people that watch every horror film that comes along? I think, I, I don't know. I would like to be hopeful and say, yes, I think there should be. Um, I think I, it, it is a very hard film to watch. So I I think that's probably where a lot of the um, kind of under the radar of it comes. And I have a hard time recommending it. You know, it is a challenge. But I think when I think about the conversations that we're having now about sexual violence and about women's autonomy over their bodies and just about and about toxic masculinity and about all of these things, like it's really easy to just have a conversation about Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby. And I think those are the big easy conversations to have because it's so clear and it's so black and white. And I think a movie like this introduces the kind of nuance that is actually going to move those conversations forward. Like it's, I, you know, I'm not going to run into somebody like Harvey Weinstein, but I might run into somebody like, like um, Bob in the story who kind of got dragged along to this and just had this expectation of what he's supposed to be. So I feel like movies like this invite the kind of nuanced conversations that I think we need to have. I think there is a place going forward for films like this. Um, because it, it's this is never going to be a promising young woman kind of film it's just it's it's right. too much um but i think that this is another element of it this is another side of this conversation because i think one of the things that this film does that i really love is it examines bob's character too and i think that is a big part of the conversation about how women are treated in the world that we often miss a lot of times it's defensive like how can you avoid being a victim not how can I avoid victimizing and I think that's something this film really explores so I think there's a place for it and I I don't know how to do that other than just to talk about it because this is this is a word of mouth film and you know it's it's like a challenge, you know, but I think, I think there's a lot of value in it. Donato, along those lines, same question to you and kind of an addendum. How, in what context, how would you feel comfortable recommending this movie to somebody? Uh, I think most importantly, it is already on the perfect streaming service for it. The immaculate, (laughs) the, 
undefeatable two V TV. But I do I'm mean not sure. That. I'm not sure they want the plug now. They would have taken oh, right, the one exactly. at the beginning, but after we just had this conversation. But I do mean that seriously. I do mean that seriously because if you are going to recommend a movie such as this, such as Eat Me, it is available for free, which I think is a huge thing for a movie that's going to challenge someone. And if you're going to sell Eat Me in any way, you're going to have to you're going to have to compare it to things. You're going to have to compare it to movies that challenge viewers but have come out in the end to show something better to the viewer. Um, I I also think that there are distribution arms right now popping up and you know do i think that this would work on something like vinegar syndrome i don't know possibly but do i think that we now have people uh like brad henderson i've mentioned a few times we've become friendly and i mean brad henderson started another arm of vinegar syndrome in a way called terrorvision that he is now heading and his the first movie they released is a WNUF Halloween special that's never had a Blu-ray release. So it's like he's already taking chances on movies. And I can tell you that like he's taking way bigger chances upcoming in the future. And I think that now that we are getting to the level where we don't even need a Vinegar Syndrome, we can get a Vinegar Syndrome outreach branch to take a gamble on something that I know they have movies that, you know, may not make them a lot of money, but it's stuff that they are passionate about and they want to put to the public. I think that Eat Me does go there. I think Eat Me does fit in at a distro company like that. And they can take a chance on something that is wild and inventive and whatever else you want to call it in the themes that it is weighing into because they're the ones that do want to push that art and they're the ones that do want to push the conversation. So maybe there is, a, you know, like I think I'm getting away from the the mindset that you have to be on vinegar or arrow or nothing. Maybe you don't, maybe you can get on second site. Maybe you can get on all these other smaller distros and maybe that's where eat me does find another audience. Yeah. Honestly, I love both the points you make. The only thing that I'll add to the conversation is just that, um, it's kind of kind of a jokey conversation on Twitter today with the, with the buddy, and they happen to mention that Tubi TV has a knack for putting the commercial breaks in the most inappropriate and wild <laughs> spots. And I have to say, watching Eat Me with commercial breaks is the most disassociative like experience I've probably ever had as a viewer in my, with any kind of film I've watched. Because like you were watching this movie, and then they cut away, and they're like, "Are you happy with your credit card?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my lord, in heaven above." So yeah, I will just say it is free on Tubi that will, there will be people, there's going to be people that will watch the movie just because somebody like Jen or you Donato um, recommend that they should. So it's great that it's on Tubi and you can watch it there. And I, I am with you. I mean, there are record labels for any caliber of vinyl releases now, and there are DVD and Blu-ray and 4k labels for any caliber. There are movies that are getting releases in the hundreds and they're going to run a movie 500 times. And that movie will only ever exist in that physical disc form 500 times. Maybe eat me is one of those, but I guarantee you there's going to be 500 really fucking happy people that they own eat me on 4k <laughs> and they will have a couple of movie nights at their place. <laughs> Uncomfortable movie. nights. I was just going to say it's a little awkward. What do you serve? You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Oh God. Um, right. Wow. What would Monocle? you Monocle? Like what dinner parties are you hosting? <laughs> Popcorn? There's popcorn in the movie. Yes. Popcorn yes. and pills. Popcorn and pills. Flintstone, Flintstone vitamins and popcorn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. That is our episode. Ooh. I mean, I like 
I hope that I hope I hope you know if you're going to watch Eat Me or not at the end of all that. Because um, yeah. as always, the movies that I come in the most conflicted about, we have some of the best conversations. I think this was no exception, Jen. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for bringing us this film. Uh, this is again, as we've been on a streak of movies that I have been really questionable about, but ended up loving. It's one of my favorite conversations we've had on the show. So, oh, well, thank you. Let well, me let let me give you a moment to promote yourself. You know, what what are the social handles for the other podcasts you're on? Where can people go to find your work or kind of stay on top of the the the, the writing and podcasting that you're doing? Um, well, before I say all of that stuff, I want to say thank you for having me on the show and thank you for talking about this movie. This is, you know, not a lot of people or pods would kind of engage in this kind of conversation. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, you can find me, you can follow me on social places at Jen Ferratu with two N's and you can find me co-hosting the Losers Club podcast and the Psychoanalysis podcast. And if you enjoyed the conversation that we had today, you will enjoy Psychoanalysis. This is the kind of stuff we talk about. We get into the ugly meat of movies a lot of times um but it's also really fun too um i make some inappropriate jokes quite often but yeah so you can find um losers club pod on social media and you can find psycho a pod also and yeah you can find me writing on the fantastic certified forgotten i have two pieces there that i am really proud of and again another like you know, I like to write about feelings, and I think I, I am really appreciative that um, you will run stuff like that because I know a lot of sites won't, and they just want to hear like an analysis or just a review. And I think the way I like to approach film is to really explore what it brings out in me and uh, or what it reminds me of and what it helps me process. And so that's I think your site is just fantastic for providing a platform for that. Um, so yeah, you can find two of my pieces there, and then I also um, have been writing for room org and ghouls magazine and just you know, lots of places if you follow me i'll post them all so yeah that's me awesome you should do that and thank you we, we're either really smart or we don't know how to run a business either <laughs> one of those is probably oh no answer. you're really smart <laughs> <laughs> donato promote thyself my friend as always you can find me matt donato at donato bomb on twitter letterboxd and instagram you will see my scary stories column you will see my not scary stories that is the title of a movie and a book you will see my <laughs> scariest scenes column you will also see my blade discussing remake column you'll also see everything else that i do it is busy season right now for me so i am buried under a stack of horror screeners that are over my eyes over my apartment and over my apartment <laughs> building so once i uh, get out of that maybe you'll see some other kind of content but for now just buckle in lots of horror reviews maybe some undertaker interactive netflix specials i don't fucking know let's see i and i'll i'll, I'll help you promote yourself um if you go to donato's bio you'll see that he has a link to his author account i would recommend you sign up as a subscriber to that because at the end of every week you'll get an email with everything that he wrote everything that he wrote in that week and that's actually, it's not, it's not fucking easy to keep track of where you're writing from and who you're writing for. Mm-hmm. In any given week, you have four or five different sites that you'll publish for. So sign up for Donato's Authory. That'll make life a lot easier for you if you're trying to check out his stuff. And sign up for Monocles because he also has an Authory. I don't write that much at all. I just write for the Chronicle and a couple other places, which you can find if you follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle. Uh, I also do encourage you, and thank you, Jen, for the kind words, to visit Certified Forgotten. We have great great writing from writers like Jen Adams. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a cavalcade of funness, I think is, is our website. You just, we, we, on our best days, we're giving people an opportunity to write about the kind of stuff that they might not be able to pitch anywhere else. And we, you know, you're as likely to see an analysis of a 
the you know Molly Henry going off on the original Cat People, or a deep dive into a Japanese ripoff, animated ripoff of Alien. We're just we're running the gamut over there again. You know, nobody nobody told us how to run a business, so we're doing it the only way we want to do it. But <laughs> that is it for this episode, Jen. Thank you for having us on your podcast. Thank you for joining us on ours. Oh, um, we will. If you can ever think of a movie even ha- that makes you half as excited as Eat Me, we would love to have you back on. Oh, awesome. Well, that's a challenge. So I will, <laughs> <laughs> I will pick up the gauntlet. Yeah. And I also have to say, um, I am coming up at you. You're like one point ahead of me as we speak, Donato. So um, Ooh, I'm, listen, I'm listen. <laughs> don't worry. I'm 0 3 in that league. So don't worry. Oh, yeah. Okay. But- Donato, I want you to take us out, but it has to be fantasy football related. Go. Mm. Oh, I was actually going to just whisper, eat me into the microphone. No, don't do that. That's gross. No, is that? Okay. James Good. Robinson. <laughs> Joe Mixon sucks. <laughs> Joe, Joe Mixon's the best. Uh, and-